Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. Greetings, listeners. We hope you had a fabulous World Environment Day and World Oceans Day this last week. Eckhart Tolle reminds us that it's important as we work to protect nature to also spend time in nature, reaping the regenerative benefits of fresh air, clean water, warm sunshine, and wild landscapes. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Manuel Pogar-Fidal, the leader of climate and energy at WWF International. He's dedicated his life to the conservation of nature and scaling solutions to climate change. And he reminds us today that the love of nature, the love of people, and the love of people living in nature, with nature, is what inspires him to continue his work to protect the health of planet and people. Before WWF International, he served as the Minister of the Environment in Peru and hosted the COP20 climate change conference that constructed the road to the Paris Climate Agreement. We're here with our guest, Manuel Bulgar Vidal, leader of climate and energy at WWF International. Welcome. Thank you, Catherine. So, Manuel, it seems you've dedicated your career to climate change. Why is this important to you? Look, I started to work in environment topics in 1986, and it was when I was in my last year of the Faculty of Law at the Universidad Católica in Lima, Peru, when with a group of friends we created an NGO, an environmental law group, because we thought that we would contribute using the law to address environmental problems. So that was my first time that I was working on environmental law, on the environment sector. And why? Probably because I am from a family very strongly related to nature. Mm. My uncle used to be the most important geographist in Peru and and a very good teacher. So it was not only my family, my relative, but also all the time he was teaching us the nature, the mountains, the vegetation, the altitude, the ecosystem. We were really learning from him about nature. And probably that was the reason that I started to work on environmental law. So we created this environmental law group in 1986 and at a time in which I was working in a mining company. I worked for a mining company from 1984 to 88, around 88. So I learned a lot about mining, the difficulties of the mining, the different conditions, labor conditions for the workers, but in a time in which in parallel I was developing my environmental expertise. So it's interesting, my professional life, it has been related to both sides, the mining, extractive industry, and the environment sector. And in 2011, I jumped into being a minister in Peru. Interesting because it was a time in which we had already developed a strong expertise and background in environment, not only on climate. That is interesting, Catherine, because before working on climate, I was more related to biodiversity. Mm-hmm. I used to strongly work on biodiversity, so ecosystem, species, and genetic resources, very strongly related to the Convention on Biological Diversity. And after that, I jumped into the climate sector. So, so I have both sides of the international convention and the international threats, no? because loss of biodiversity and climate change are the two largest and biggest threats to the world. Absolutely. I mean, the minute we started to turn this narrative toward climate justice and talk about the impacts on humanity and our legacy as a species, that's what really got people's attention. That's right? true, because when we think about environment, we are working for a public interest. Interesting, right. because in my professional life, I've been involved in working for a public interest more than working for a private interest. So to work 
for the public interest means to engage with the citizens, to understand their needs, to try to address those needs, to know that by working on justice, by working on human rights, by working on environment, we are addressing what it is the needs of the people who has less. Well, when you were initiated into the, the WWF International as um, the leader of climate and energy, um, you made a statement that is really important for you that uh, we help humanity see its connection to nature to help recreate that harmony. Can you speak to the importance of this, this sort of nexus of you know, climate change, humanity, and, and biodiversity? That vision, that living in harmony with nature, it is really important, not only for WWF, for the world. Yes. Because the human beings are used to being very selfish. We are used to thinking that we can replace what we are losing now. That is part of the human being, and that is a behavior but that we should change because it is not about or that we will continue losing resources, species, or degrading ecosystem. It is that we should keep it, we should protect it because it is in the base of our survival. It is in the base of our economy. So our point as WWF, it is that we should change the behavior of the people to have them understanding that we should live in harmony with nature. Because nature, it is about us. Nature, it is about our survival. Nature, it is about this generation and the next generation. So it is an ethic value. It is a very important ethic value. And that is why we are working strongly on that, in having the people understanding that we are part of the nation and we should keep that nation. That's beautiful. And I have to comment um, to our audience that behind our guest is this beautiful poster of the Pope arriving uh, to some event. And I just I can't uh, avoid asking about Laudato Si and how that impacted the climate discussions and the importance of religious leaders, spiritual groups, community movements that are values-based, how important they are to this discussion and motivating people to become involved. Yeah. I am not sure how many of the people who is listening in this interview has already read Laudato Si. If not, they should read it. It's yes. a beautiful text. In some way, Catherine, I think that we haven't understood well that the Pope has brought a new way of thinking about development. When, when the Pope says that it is yes. about our common house, it is our collective place, our collective house, also in a very brave way, the Pope has reinterpreted the, the, the Bible. No? And that is good because we used to think, by reading the Bible, that we are here to impose our condition to the earth and to the nation. And the Pope, through Laudato Si, is saying to us, that's not correct. We are here to engage, to link with the earth, to link with the nation. So our right. responsibility it is to protect it, it is to keep it. It is not to impose our conditions to the earth. And that is a really strong message of Laudato Si. Laudato Si, it is not only important when we think about sustainable development or a carbon neutral economy or when we are thinking to address nature laws. It is also a political message. Yes. Because for sure it is not only a text that it is aspirational. It is a political message because it is saying to us, even to decision makers in the political level, that we should have that kind of consideration if we are planning to get and to achieve a sustainable development in some time frame. It is also important, I'm going to say something that probably it is not too polite, but what it is currently happening, for example, in Brazil, it is that many of the new president or many of the emerging political parties that are deniers to climate change are those 
who are strongly supported by the evangelists. So mm. there is a really interesting book that has been released in Latin America about political parties and evangelism. Interesting, interesting how much the religion it has became part of the narrative to the new political parties, mostly to the deniers. So, so there is an mm. interesting thing to, to evaluate in that relation. And for example, in Costa Rica, in the last election, yes. the last election it was one Catholic against one evangelist. So that is happening strongly, not only in mm. Latin America, even in Europe. So it is interesting to address those mm. kind of things and to see how much through Laudato Si we can re-channel the thing, the, the way of thinking of the denier, because there are no room for deniers. No. When we know that we are working in the same house, in the same room, in the same space, when we know that we should live in harmony with nature, there are no way for deniers. You know? So, so the yes. religion is playing a role, even in the environment, in the climate, and in the nature discussion, and it is good, because the church it is to discuss. You no, know? it is to discuss, to understand our conditions of human beings, our role as citizens our responsibility with the world. So, so it is good to have this kind of discussion about religion, environment, and climate. Wow, that's just brilliant. And you know, when a society is going through a massive transformation, it seems that what we do is we go back to our core beliefs, our value systems. It's a mindset change, which is actually really, you know, under discussion for, for shifting. Yes, it's and a, environment, considering it is about values, it is about yes. ethics, no? it is about how are we able to uh, use those values in the current generation, but also in benefit to the next generation? Because Absolutely. I remember that a friend some time ago, many, many years ago, told me the best way to know if you are doing good thing, it is by looking in a mirror and ask to you, are you working strongly for having next generation in better condition of life? That is a question that everybody should do it in front of a mirror. Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson, for sure. <laughs> you always look at the man in the mirror. And at the same time, I mean, as you said, it was your family influence that got you involved and on your path toward um, consideration of human rights and looking at different environmental issues. And so I have to ask the question, since you're also very engaged, WWF International, with different governments, and you're partnering with companies, and you're part of a number of growing public movements, uh, pushing governments forward to help realize their commitments to climate change. Can you tell us about how we're moving forward and what we hope to accomplish here at the World Economic Forum in order to really advance the climate agenda? Look, Ekaterin, I think that in some way we have gotten strong decisions, and that's good. If we see what we did in 2015, a time in which we approved the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement, among some others, the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Management, among some other things, I think that we did it well. But that created a framework for the future. So that was not the ending point, but the starting point. So what we can see is that in 2015, we start a new process towards sustainability. And when we think about sustainability, there are two important dates, times. 2030, the time in which we should achieve the SDGs, or Sustainable Development Goals, the 17, and 2050, the time in which we should achieve a carbon-neutral economy and resilient economy. So two yes. important times for the world. But there is a missing point. 
because we are addressing climate, we are addressing disaster risk management, we are addressing development, but not strongly nature loss. If we see the curve of how much we are losing nature, it is incredible and it is something that we should revert. So the point is how can we bend the curve of nature loss? That is why here in the World Economic Forum, we are pushing the idea that the world needs to get a new deal for nature and people. We do need to define a new framework that can bring us measures that can change our behavior in relation to nature. If not, it's going to be very difficult to achieve the 2030 agenda. If not, it's going to be very difficult to have countries and human beings defining adaptation plans and achieving their target because adaptation and resilience, it is related to nature. So so that is why we are moving, we are pushing and we are promoting the, the idea that we should address nature loss. How? By defining a clear target. That target should be oriented to a behavioral change. And how? By saying to the world that the nature is related to our survival and it is related to our economy. So there are no way to continue getting economic growing if it is not by linking more strongly with nature. Not by extracting the resources, by keeping for the next generation, by keeping to secure and to assure a long-term development of our economy. But also it is related to the people who has less. And that people, it is related to indigenous people, it is related to rural communities, it is related to medium class and many, many others that need to have nature as a way to continue their daily activities. I hope that this discussion during Davos in the World Economic Forum could move us towards the next steps in which we are going to discuss probably this in the next UN General Assembly in September. I hope also that we can link this with our climate debate and that by 2020 we can really get a new deal for nature that it's going to complete all this puzzle to sing on a strong development by 2030 and 2050. Nature is not just the victim but also part solution. And so when we were at the Global Climate Action Summit together and then carried over into the UN Summit in New York just this past autumn as well, one of the major themes was nature is the solution. And so some of the lower hanging fruit is just to retain the forests in the Amazon. Yeah, and and that, to that is completely true. And sorry to true that sure. we have developed a strong climate action agenda. So yes. now... The business sector it is more active and more responsible in defining clear targets in, in most of the cases by defining targets based on science in energy, on transport, on buildings, among some others. But there is a sector that has already emerged as a strong one that could contribute with 30% of the climate solution. It is that sector that it is related to forest, food, and land. And when we think about forest, food, and land, there is a strong relation in between climate and nature. Because forest, it is nature. Food, it is nature. And land, it is nature. So I think that in some way, by developing this sector that can contribute with 30% of the climate solution, on the other hand, we are addressing nature loss. So so that is the low-hanging fruit to continue working on that. How, for example, by saying to the people, we can change our diets. We can have a more sustainable diet as a way to take out all the pressure that we are putting into the resources. So to avoid having a 
food dependent meat diet That's and right. to make it more diverse by bringing more vegetables into our diet. Also by defining more clear, transparent supply chains. So yes. if we know that we are buying some product that it is related to the forest, we want to know that that product it is not promoting deforestation. So those kind of things are the things that we are moving, that we are pushing, not only to address climate, but also to address nature loss. Well, that's fantastic. And you just you teed up beautifully this wonderful report, the Climate Action Exponential Roadmap gives then us an outline and opportunity for expanding and actions, not just within the private sector or within it government, but document. for everyone. Yeah. There's so many ways that the public can get involved in it. You want to speak to this. That roadmap, it is amazing. It is saying that by bringing some policy, political, economic solutions or measures, we can really leverage more exponential positive consequences in sectors as energy, as building, as, as transport, but also food, agriculture, and forest. And it is a really interesting document that was produced by Cristiana Figueres and, yes. and, and Rockstrom that was presented you during GCAS, during the Global Climate Action Summit in right. September of the last year, right. in which WWF had an also important role. And I think that if we are able to adopt in those kind of measures, we are going to be able to define 2020 as a time in which we should pick emissions. Well, and it's, it's so urgent because the IPCC, and we'll just end on this, the IPCC in their last report, the International Panel on Climate Change, they suggest that we have 12 years to go for dramatic change in our behavior and yeah. our And, and, and let actions. me say something, Catherine, that many people is misunderstanding that 12 years because it is not that we can postpone for 12 years our action. Act now. Yes. To have in 12 year positive consequence to keep the temperature raised no more than 1.5 degrees. No, this is important, to, to, important to, to raise that message. It, we cannot wait 12 years. We should define 2020 as a time to peak emission. Yes. And that is the only way that in which by 2030 we could be in a good trajectory to have by the half of the century no more than 1.5 rays of temperature. Thank you so much for joining us. What an amazing conversation. Thank we you, could Catherine. go on all day, I could tell. Thank you for joining us every Wednesday and Friday morning at 9 a.m. GMT. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you.